Coming up on today's show, what on earth is going on with the Green Party? Alberta's facing a bit of a crisis. A long-standing shortage is putting a lot of strain on rural veterinarians. And what's going on with the border and with travel, all kinds of new rules around vaccination. We'll have that chat coming up today. All right, the Green Party situation. Let's get some expert analysis on this because I will admit uh, it's a lot of it's new to me and a lot of it's very confusing. David Aiken, though, is uh, he's the guy in charge of all of the politics for Global News. He's the chief political correspondent. He joins us now. Hi, David. How are you? Hi, Shane. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, after a year of you know reporting pretty much nothing on vaccines yeah. and COVID. Hallelujah! A real juicy political story because uh, lots of drama, lots of intrigue, and you know what? I mean, I think you know this, but. You know, sure, the Green Party is not going to elect any MPs in Alberta, but the Green Party takes away support from New Democrats in Western Canada. And in Eastern Canada, the Greens sat the Trudeau Liberals. In fact, we're going to talk about this MP who crossed the floor, uh, this Green MP. She defeated a Trudeau Liberal, and there are Liberals in Eastern Canada, I tell you, that are worried about a Green surge. So if you're a Conservative or any other party, strong Green support means... You know, potentially taking seats from liberals or New Democrats, weak Greens means, phew, say, liberals in the East and New Democrats in the West. (laughs) Yeah, you make a really good point. I think for most people in Alberta, the Green Party is uh, not something that's on their radar, but it will have an impact. There's no question about it. So um, just walk me through what happened, how this whole soap opera started to unfold and where we are now, David. Sure. This starts, believe it or not, with the Israel-Hamas conflict that, you know, just sort of uh, went quiet. And in the middle of that conflict, you know, most Western governments, including Canada's, you know, the mainstream reaction was, everybody, ceasefire, please. We condemn the terrorist Hamas group for lobbing rockets at Israeli civilians. But Israel took a lot of criticism from its friends, like Canada, for perhaps, uh, you know, too much violence. Remember, it blew up that building once with, uh, with the journalists in it. So Canada officially, and this is the position of the Liberal Party, and I'd say the Conservatives generally, Israel's our friend. It has the right to defend itself, but Israel, that's just over-the-top violence. And the Palestinian uh, Hamas group, uh, that's, uh, you know, got to stop ceasefire. Yeah. Okay. So- the Green Party leader came out with, Annamie Paul, yeah. came out and said basically the same thing. And this, this MP that defected, which she's still a Green MP, her name's Jenica Atwin from Fredericton, she put something on social media saying, Enemy Paul, that is totally inadequate. There's only one victim here. It's the Palestinians. And then she used the word apartheid in connection with Israel. Israel okay. As you probably know, that goes over a line that really offends a lot of Jewish groups, mainstream parliamentarians. Israel, our ally, is not an apartheid state. Um, so what happened next is one of Enemy Paul's advisors in, working for her, a guy named Noah Zatzman, then starts tweeting or putting up social media posts vowing to defeat MPs like yeah. this Green MP who use this language. That got the whole Green Party establishment in an uproar saying you can't have someone who's working for the leader attacking Green MPs. And eventually, Jenica Allen would quit and go and, you know, cross the floor to the Liberals. And she cited that she felt she was under attack from this advisor. So Tuesday night, the Green Party's governing council had a meeting and passed on a very narrow margin, five votes to four, this motion. It basically was a threat to Annamie Paul, and it said this, Annamie Paul, you publicly rebuke this advisor, Noah Zatzman, and if you don't, we are going to have a non-confidence vote on July the 20th and try to boot you from the job. 
yesterday, so the night after this meeting, Annamie Paul comes out and says, you know, to heck with you. First of all, a non-confidence vote for this governing council needs a three-quarters majority. Mm-hmm. Remember, the motion that sort of this threat was only a five-to-four vote, far from a three-quarters. So Annamie Paul, I think, looked at the numbers and said that her council's divided. There's a bit of an old guard and a new guard on it. She said, I'm not going to be, so she says, brought to heel. You probably know Annamie Paul is the first elected Jewish female leader, first elected black female leader in our history. And she was saying the charges that was presented to her at this this meeting of the governing council, racist, sexist, she's not going to bow down before that. Okay, now, so David, with those, I mean, those allegations, though, of racism and sexism, that was one of the things that caught my attention. I was like, really, what happened? Do we have any, has she backed that up? Has she told us what those statements are? She did not, but if you want to go to our website, we did manage to get a copy of the charge sheet, essentially. It was three or four pages long that these counselors who wanted to dump her, you know, some of the stuff they, they put in there. And you sort of have to read what they're saying, saying she's arrogant and she lies and she's a bully and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, if you are, again, the first black Jewish woman leader following, you know, Elizabeth May, a white Protestant uh, female leader, yeah. you know, Annamie Paul's uh, point was, you know, all of a sudden when people like me, that's a phrase she used, become in charge, all of a sudden people want to have new rules, new sanctions, new controls. And she said, forget that. I should be given the freedom to operate with the same authority that Elizabeth May was able to do. That's her point. So it's on our website, as I said, that you should be able to find it pretty easy if you want more details on the the racist, sexist letter, if you will. Okay, the other allegation that kind of made me raise my eyebrows yesterday was Justin Trudeau. She will not be another woman forced out of politics Mm. by Justin Trudeau. What did Justin Trudeau have to do with this? Well, she, uh, I mean, this is actually a point she's been making for the last six months. And she's run, uh, Annamie Paul has run twice in by-elections unsuccessfully in a really super liberal riding, Toronto Centre. I mean, that, I think she should run somewhere else, but not, that's her choice. Anyway, she's been making this point that, you know, Trudeau says he's a feminist. Uh, Trudeau yeah. stands up and here he is, you know, basically trying to destabilize her leadership. Right, the leadership of the of a female leader of a party in, in making this cynical move to take someone in, and you know the Green Party, uh, the Green Party in New Brunswick actually is very the provincial Green Party is strong, led by a guy named David Kuhn, also has the same Fredericton seat that Janica Adwin did. And David Kuhn's point when this floor crossing happened, similar to Annamie Paul's, was saying, "Hey, why don't you talk to uh, Selena Cesar Chavan or Jody Wilson Raybould?" Mm-hmm couple of strong women that couldn't, you know, that basically got ran out of Justin Trudeau's, quote, feminist caucus. So that's the point that Annamie Paul is trying to make, that Trudeau talks a lot about being a feminist, but he really isn't if he wanted to support uh, women in politics, respectful women. You know, I should point out, uh, you know, I know a lot of people in Alberta and elsewhere follow Michelle Rempel-Garner on yes. Twitter, the conservative MP from Calgary, and, and you know, she was she was kind of rooting for Annamie Paul. I mean, she, I, I remember one tweet she said, you know, she's looking forward to debating Annamie Paul uh, about ideas, but she, she uh, Michelle Rumpel-Garner, was all the support for Annamie Paul, who um, she felt was getting, you know, people were trying to undermine a strong female leader, and, and that, that offended uh, Michelle Rumpel. So is the allegation that Trudeau should have said, no, you can't join the Liberal Party because it would be unfair to Annamie Paul? I mean... Or was he actively recruiting this member? Is that the allegation, or is it just the fact that he he welcomed her into the fold? 
I think there's. I think Anime is playing a little offense here. Like that's that's my reading. Yeah. You know, maybe she 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 doth protest too much. But you know, one on the other hand, uh, this is this is a big deal. When you, Jenica uh, sure Atwood definitely was a you know quote unquote a star in Parliament, and a lot of Greens thought she was a real rising young force. She's a young MP, first time MP, first uh, Green MP to win basically west of Vancouver Island, if you know what I mean. And it was a real it was a real gut uh, punch when she crossed the floor, and for the Liberals, a real triumph. Uh, to Because, again, as I mentioned, in eastern Canada, Liberals, I guarantee you, uh, you know, yes, con- there's going to be progressive conservatives that they're going to have to face, but there are there is a green surge. So, so this is a bit of the big political sort of backdrop um, against that. Listen, in the last election campaign, uh, Shay, I was on, you know, as I usually am, I'm, you, you travel around with the yep, leaders. Yep. I turned out and I would switch buses. I'd go out with Trudeau for a week. I'd go out with Sheer for a week and so on. I even went out with Elizabeth May for a week and, and covered her travels. And guess what? I ended up in Fredericton four times. That's with four different leaders, or actually Sheer twice. That riding is absolutely in play. Yep. Jenica Atwin won it as a Green. She defeated the Liberal. And then a year and a half later, she's, oh, a, she's liberal. a Liberal. <laughs> that riding is going to be a target again. And Anime wants it. Paul wants it back. You know, the conservatives want it. They're the other ones who, you know, think that's that they did. They held it, you know, as few as six or seven years ago. So um, and there's a lot of ridings in and around Atlanta, Canada. It's going to be a close election, yeah. I think, you know, if, if um, in the sense of majority minority, I still think the liberals are favored. But, you know, the seats are going to be highly contested everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, David, it's a it's a story with a lot of twists and turns. And I knew you were the guy I had to it's have to, to walk us finally. through it. So <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Hey, no problem, Shay. Have a great afternoon. Yeah, you too. Thanks, David. That is David Aiken, who is the chief political correspondent for Global News. There is a decades-long shortage of veterinarians that's really starting to cause big problems in our province. Uh, industry professionals, all kinds of stakeholders saying, we got to do something to try and fix this. So we're going to get uh, a look at exactly what's going on in Alberta right now with Dr. Pat Burridge. Um, Dr. Burridge is the president of the Alberta Veterinary Medical Association, joining us now. Uh, doctor, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, good morning, Shay. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. So when we take a look at what's going on with vets in uh, the province of Alberta, I guess we're dealing primarily with rural vets here. Is that where we're seeing the biggest shortage? Well, we'd like to think that, but that's not the case, Shay. I okay. think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's across the board in, in all aspects of veterinary profession. So, if we're thinking of private practice, both the companion animal and and the rural mixed animal practice uh, are both in need. And when we're talking about veterinary professionals, we're not only talking about veterinarians, we're also talking about veterinary technologists. So uh, it's a veterinary professional yeah. workplace shortage and covers it all. Yeah, it's an industry-wide sort of thing. So what kind of an effect are we seeing on the province right now? What, what you know, just how bad is the situation and uh, what effect is it having on, on, on Albertans? Well, the good thing is that, 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 that the animals are still being cared for. I think the most significant issue is the toll it's taking on the mental health of, of the veterinary professionals because COVID has exaggerated uh, the issue significantly. Um, you know, animals are still being cared for, obviously, for elective-type procedures. Uh, there's a significant wait time for clients, and so um, we're we're where we are as as well as as the general public is concerned that we're if we don't address this 
uh, sooner than later, there will be issues associated with animal welfare, food safety, all those things. Yeah, you make a good point, because I think for a lot of us, especially those of us who live in the city, when we think about the vets, you know, oh, we've we got to take our dog in for its shots or, you know, whatever the case may be, dogs, cats, things like that. But, you know, when for, for rural people and for, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the cattle industry and things like that, veterinarian services are, are a cornerstone of making sure that that industry functions properly. Well, that's correct. And, and there are pockets of the province where access to veterinary service is very limited, and, and obviously that's a concern. And so as a producer, one has to be concerned is, is if, I have, if I have an animal in need, where do I go? And, and, and again, this has been a long time getting to this point, Shay, and, yeah. and, uh, uh, but it's recognized now. And, and, and uh, we, we've had some recent information that's been uh, through a government-sponsored report that's indicated how serious the problem is and how serious the problem will be if things aren't addressed. Now, like you say, this has been an ongoing situation for some time. We just don't produce enough veterinarians in Alberta, right? That, that's basically the cornerstone here. Well, that's correct. And, and so we, we haven't kept pace with the population. So as veterinarians, uh, and, and this is, you know, and to be fair to the, to the process, Alberta isn't alone in this. It, this is a sort of a global issue, but certainly a Canada-wide issue. And, and because we have our own veterinary college and, and we graduate our, our own Alberta-born students, uh, this is uh, this is now a concern to us, and so uh, generally uh, retirement is about three percent of the population, and and we're only graduating enough veterinarians to fill that void of retiring veterinarians, and so uh, zero growth, and 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 that's starting to expose a weakness in the system. Well, I was really surprised to find out that we only graduate thirty students a year uh, for decades. I mean, now it's been expanded to fifty, but they're not even graduated yet. Um, that that seems like a tiny, tiny school for a province this size. <laughs> it 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 appears that way. Yes, <laughs> and so so you know it it's uh, it's not that people don't want we, to be vets. It's just there's there's not enough educational spaces. Oh, correct. I mean, we're we're very oversubscribed. I mean, we have five to one qualified applicants per seat, and so. Oh so we think about those 30 seats or now soon to be 50 seats i mean there's 150 qualified individuals and so uh we have lots of people that have the qualifications to be veterinarians we just don't have the space for them so obviously a, a, a one way to remedy this would be to expand the number of spaces i would think right is that something that you're focusing on uh, very much so we're in conversation with with both government and 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 the university of calgary school of veterinary medicine uh, and obviously a complex process because uh, money solves a lot of problems, but, but also there's infrastructure at, yeah. at the educational end to be able to handle the number of these students. And so this conversation has been ongoing for some time uh, with the recent information we have. Now we're amping up the, the conversation to go, how, to, how do we make this real? So in trying to handle what's going on right now, um, when you're taking a look at this, I imagine it's just like it is with... Um uh, human doctors, uh, in terms of getting people to work in smaller areas and rural areas, is tough. Uh, they'd rather live in the cities, and uh, I imagine that's a consideration that you have to try and deal with. And also the fact that it is so hard to get into, and the people who are in it and perhaps want to get out of it are ready for retirement are being forced to stay on longer than they had planned, simply because they feel they have to. Right? Are both those things happening? Well, certainly both of those things are happening, and and I have. I am able to 
to uh, secure senior citizens discounts at, at many restaurants <laughs> that I that uh, and and having said that I, I do I should I really be still in practice and and obviously love what I do and and love to contribute but but uh, certainly there isn't any young people standing behind me tapping me on the shoulder to take my place so so that's that's that is certainly part of it and and like many other professions attracting new graduates into rural communities yeah. is difficult and 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 again it is a big big issue from a number of different reasons we can we may be able to attract the veterinarian but they usually come with a spouse and a family yeah. and 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 how do we entertain that part of of the equation uh and so there's been lots of discussions with municipal districts and and government in in yes we need to look at how to attract the veterinarian first but we also have to deal with the family that comes with them and so um and these are things and obviously when i graduated thir- graduated 30 some years ago you know 20 percent of the population came from an agricultural background well now they tell me it's less than three percent so wow. so those select individuals that are entering into vet school have you know are, are much distanced from agriculture than it was when i was there and so uh, typically rural people go back to rural settings um, but we have a smaller population to choose from. So, so again, the struggle is how do we get those that don't originate from agriculture back into agriculture? And that's part of our job. So obviously you're sounding the alarm. How's it going over with, like you say, the educational institutions, University of Calgary and the provincial government? Did they recognize the need to um, put more resources into this or are you sort of running into a, a brick wall here? Well, thankfully, no brick walls yet. Good. And And when I say that, um, everybody has been working together. I mean, even this week, we're organizing a couple of different working groups. Uh, you know, it's being spearheaded by the Alberta Veterinary Medical Association, uh, one working group on education retention and, and another working group on, on registered veterinary technologists utilization. So how do we, how do we get, get technologists to support the veterinarians to, to continue to get the work done? And so, um, this involves all the stakeholders, obviously the educational institutions, government, and and uh, and any of the industries that involve veterinarians. And so, and and this has been, you know, we're, we're we've been amping this up as we go, and and now it's go time. And 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 the government has been very supportive all the way along, and they're they're very interested um, to see the outcome of these working groups, which we hope that we'll have information back by early fall and and but government is waiting and and they're aware and and they've been part of the conversation all the way along excellent i mean it, it makes sense that uh, this is something that it's a dire need and it, it can affect industry in all kinds of different areas so good to hear that everybody seems to be on board and recognizes this is a problem and uh, working together on finding a solution so fingers crossed we can be optimistic here absolutely uh, it's kind of exciting times meaning you know this is this will be great for Alberta. Yeah. It'll be great for the, the the vet school in Calgary if we can if we can expand the number of students in in fairly short order. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Doctor. I really appreciate it. Okay, great, Shay. Thanks. Thank you. That's Doctor Pat Burridge, who is the president of the Alberta Veterinary Medical Association. We're seeing slow and uh, some pretty cautious changes from our federal government as we move through this pandemic phase of life and into the post-pandemic vaccinated phase. But still a lot of questions. There's a real lack of clarity around what to expect, when to expect it, especially around the border and around travel. And some of the quarantine rules being eased, but take a look around the world and other 
Countries are allowing unfettered travel to fully vaccinated visitors, so so why aren't we? We're going to chat now with Dr. Ambarish Chandra, who is an uh, economics professor at the University of Toronto, doing some research recently into travel across the U.S.-Canada border. Doctor, thanks so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate your time. Sure, happy to be here. Yeah, taking a look at this discussion, and I'm starting to sense some growing frustration, not only on the Canadian side, but also on the American side, specifically regarding the border and the lack of clarity and the fact that why, you know, we talked about vaccines, people had to get vaccinated, we're seeing things open up, but why aren't we moving forward, or at least putting in a framework and having some understanding about when this might happen? Yeah, I mean, I've been asking that same question. I think that it's uh, not only the time, I think it's actually long overdue that we had at least a framework, at least some sense of when, you know, again, at least fully vaccinated travelers would be able to travel freely across the border. uh, And at some point, uh, you know, resumption of regular border crossing. We've seen none of that so far. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, the whole border situation, why it came in, why the Canadian government took the very, very cautious approach to the border that they did was understandable. I mean, the United States was out of control when it came to COVID. But things have changed, and it doesn't look like the policies around it have changed in lockstep with the reality on the ground. Yeah, that's exactly right. I don't think we've had a proportionate response. I think that um, we were cautious, and rightly so, last year. Um, we uh, you know, shut down non-essential travel, both Canada and the United States did. And I think that was the right decision. And I'm saying that as an economist who studies cross-border travel. And I think, you know, normally you wouldn't hear me say something like this. I think travel, any kind of travel, domestic, international, is important. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's part of our charter rights, but it's also economically important. And so I, I wouldn't normally be advocating for closing down borders. But last year was a completely unprecedented situation. But things are very different today, and we've not seen any kind of proportionate response. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, so at this point, any insight as to what we're basing this relatively slow roll on in terms of why we're um, being so hesitant and cautious at this point when we're seeing things pretty much wide open in the United States and starting to open in Canada? Why is it? Why are we still dragging our feet? It's it's baffling. Honestly, uh, you know, where we could have predicted fairly easily where we'd be today, just based on the vaccine rollout that happened in the U.S. As early as February and March, it was obvious that their numbers would come down sharply, and they did. As early as April, their numbers were lower than ours on a per capita basis. Uh, that would have been a good time to say, okay, fine, you know, it's no longer, we no longer have a threat from Americans necessarily coming to Canada or vice versa or Canadians going there. Per capita numbers have been very similar for the last two to three months. Um, and now vaccination rates are, you know, just, just as high here. I mean, they're higher by some metrics and they're catching up very fast by other metrics. So we should at least have had a plan in place and yeah. there's been none of that. Yeah. And, you know, you cannot overstate how important it is to, you know, if you're not going to open the border, put a plan in place. I mean, you're talking about billions of dollars in economic activity, not to mention the fact there's a lot of people who cross that border for family reasons, for work reasons. It, it has a major impact, massive impact. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, again, I'm an economist and, you know, people might think, your listeners might think that, oh, all I care about is economic activity or GDP. That's not even true. I think just the human cost of yeah. people... Canadians and Americans being, you know, I've, I've received letters over the last few days since I wrote this piece recently in the in the Globe and Mail, and letters from people, you know, everyday Canadians who've been separated from family, who are unable to see their children, who are not who are stranded in other countries, um, and they they they're writing out of frustration to their MPs, but to you know people like me who just happen to be commenting on the situation, and they're saying, look, listen to our situation. We're being, you know, we're, we're being separated from our loved ones. We're not able to do things that we've planned our lives around. Um, so it's very, very uh, sad. Some of these stories are very sad to hear. Um, 
you know, and the other issue, and I don't know if you touched on this, I think you did. We've been told to trust the science. We've been told, you know, the vaccines are the way out. If we all went and got vaccinated and the science says that's the way out, you know, when you talk about just incentivizing vaccinations and, and, and getting back to normal, we should be getting let out at this point, should we not? I mean, that was the whole goal of this. Yeah, I do agree. I think that I think that many governments, provincial and federal, dropped the ball by not, you know, tying, you know, some kind of incentive, some kind of, um, you know, carrot to the fact that, you know, if we had high enough vaccination rates, we would get certain things. And, you know, many other governments did that in, in the U.S. They, they explicitly linked reopening metrics and, um, you know, travel uh, restrictions to vaccination rates. We've not done that. We've just sort of assumed that Canadians will get vaccinated. And we're doing that, by the way. But, uh, you know, but we're not <laughs> really, it's frustrating to see we don't seem to be getting much for our efforts. No, exactly. Yeah. Any idea? I mean, we know that there's supposed to be some meetings involving the premiers and the, and the prime minister, and they're going to push uh, the discussion about the border. And we know that there was some discussions yesterday involving, um, you know, Amer- uh, I think it was, uh, was it Adam Schiff or Chuck Schumer who was speaking to the Canadian Travel Association. So the pressure is certainly on. This will have to move at some point, right? Yeah, I mean, Chuck Schumer is one among just many American congressmen and senators who are not just frustrated, but increasingly, I would say, angry at the situation because they say, look, you, came to, you, you seem to be continue to be point, painting the United States as this right. you know, hotbed of the virus when it's not even true. I mean, American case numbers are lower, as I said, than ours per capita. And so they're saying this is just completely, you know, there, there's no justification for this. And there's some talk of the Americans unilaterally opening the border and allowing Canadians to enter the U.S., um, which now, historically, that would be a very aggressive move for them to do it. But, you know, at some point, Canada is not really um, taking a position that's backed up by any reasonable metric. No, exactly. I mean, the science says do this. So, yeah, uh, hopefully something moves soon here. I appreciate your time, doctor. Thank you very much. Sure, sure. Thanks. That is Dr. Ambaris Chandra. Uh, professor of economics at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.